the Brothers in Kayfabe. For over two seasons, the revolutionary force in brotherly kayfabe entertainment. And now, Pro Wrestling and Being a Good Brother present the Brothers in Kayfabe. And welcome back to the Brothers in Kayfabe podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Mr. Rasslin, Landon Bumgarner. Today we are doing one of Mr. Rasslin's historical wrestling deep dives, but we're going to try some things, make it just a little bit different. Um, got some feedback on the Beyond the Mat deep dive, um, which if you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to listen to that, especially the special point five episode that released after um that with uh, an interview with mr roy um super fan who's supposed to be featured in beyond the mat the footage was filmed uh but never released left on the cutting room floor check that out if you haven't um but one of the things that's hard for me to do whenever i do these deep dives is i prepare so much information um and I'm so focused on communicating all the information that I have and everything that I found to you guys that sometimes the delivery that uh, information isn't the best. So I apologize if any of these deep dives have been a little stale, a little boring. I'm going to try and spice today's up um, by seeing just what all we can get away with. And what I mean by that is we're going to be creative. Well, I'm going to be creative in the delivery of this. So if you've listened to our podcast at all, pretty much any episode, you know it's not any secret that I am an ECW fanboy, an ECW diehard. I always, my whole life, I've always said I was born in the wrong time um, for many, many different reasons. And I feel like if I could have been one of those who were fortunate to grow up as a teenager during the Attitude Era, um, that East, I would have been team ECW, it wouldn't be team WWF, it wouldn't be team WCW, it'd be ECW all the way. And I continue to be fascinated by um, the enigma that is ECW and just all the things that happened, the the larger than life characters that came out of ECW, the, the rebellious side of it, the kind of punk rock side as I like to think of it. Um, Obviously, <laughs> there's some, there's a lot of mature stuff in there. Um, some I agree with, um, quite a bit. I disagree with. That's a that's a podcast for another day. Um, but when it comes to bell to bell action and storytelling, ECW was up there with the very very best. And so today, um, we're going to talk about ECW, but specifically, we're going to talk about the history of how the ECW one night stand pay-per-views came to be. Um, these pay-per-views are some of my absolute favorite shows in wrestling history period. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this, uh, about how it started out really with, uh, it was going to be a one and done deal and then spread out, uh, to more events, but we're also going to cover, 
a little bit of ECW Hardcore Homecoming. So I say let's go ahead and just jump into this deep dive. Man, if you've got some if you got some barbar laying around, grab it. If you got a blue steel chair, grab that as well. Let's get some purple and red mixed in with a little bit of like a nice light teal, light blue. Get us some black aprons, some black ropes, and welcome to the land of extreme. It is the 2000s. The landscape of professional wrestling is forever changed with the conclusion of the Monday Night Wars. ECW is no more, WCW no more. There is only the newly christened, as of 2002, WWE. Now, the reason I say the landscape is changed forever is because there are a lot of things that WCW did way better than the WWF. And there's a lot of things that ECW did better than WCW and WWF. Now, WWF owning both. Neither company left standing on their own. The WWF, now WWE, has the tools to be more successful than any professional wrestling company there has ever been. And as their track record has proven now in 2021... Um, after a year of record-breaking profits, that continues to be true, um, despite the product not being quite what it should be or what it used to be, ECW disappeared, and there's a giant barbed wire-shaped hole left in everybody's heart. But that wouldn't be the end of it. You had prominent stars such as Taz and RVD making a name for themselves in the WWF. You had guys like Jerry Lynn and Sabu continuing, uh, and Raven continuing to push boundaries and redefy what wrestling can be in smaller companies like TNA and Ring of Honor. Guys like Tommy Dreamer stayed around for a little bit in WWE on screen, but slowly made the shift to backstage. ECW left a thumbprint unlike any other company before it. Now, every time the WWE or the WWF, maybe at the time being, had acquired a company, they absorbed some talent, they absorbed a handful of employees. Most importantly, they absorbed all the rights, the tape libraries, all that kind of stuff. Which, from their point of view, that's a genius, genius business move. I applaud that. Um, because they own it now. ECW stands out to me the most because WCW noticeably all their largest stars were under Time Warner contracts and the WWE did not choose to buy out those contracts. So some of the biggest stars were left out after WCW closed their doors. The interesting about thing about that is 
is a lot of the talent that came over from WCW. You have a handful of stars, uh, like those who were part of the Radicals. You have Booker T. Um, you have Ric Flair, guys like that, who come and on TV are making impact. You have Arn Anderson doing backstage stuff now, um, which up until just the last couple of years has been a huge impact on the future of the WWE and the talent that they would have. But ECW stands out to me uh, because of the number of talents that they picked up, WWE that is picked up from ECW um, throughout the 2000s, even guys like Stevie Richards um, getting his start in the Attitude Era on WWE programming, continuing well into the late 2000s and even eventually going to TNA. Um, Raven and Tommy Dreamer on and off screen. You have Rhino. Um, the last ever official ECW world champion um, at the time of the company ending is now in WWE doing great things. I mean, you just have tons of, of talent like that and so many others, um, but also the transition to backstage roles and producers and head of talent relations, all that kind of thing that will trickle down and lead to changes. You also get Taz uh, making the shift to a color commentator and you think for the ruthless aggression era, how iconic Taz's voice is to commentary. Um, and now that he's in AEW doing commentary to this day, um, he's doing some manager work. What, what an impact that is. So the legacy of ECW is without question, but it makes you wonder where the legacy of ECW would be if whenever the arena shut their doors and ECW was done. If nothing else happened, if there was no more ECW thrown into the spotlight, yes, you had the invasion, but what if the evasion didn't happen? Today, we're going to talk about ECW one night stand one and two, as well as hardcore homecoming. Now, the reason we're going to talk about Hardcore Homecoming as well is because if you're not aware of that, to the ECW diehard fans, Hardcore Homecoming is the real ECW reunion in One Night Stand because it was held, yes, One Night Stand 1 and 2 are held in the Hammerstein Ballroom, but the Hardcore Homecoming in 2005 was held in the ECW Arena in South Philly. And there's a lot of talent um, that was brought in for uh, the first two one-night stands. But more importantly, there's a lot of talent, a lot of name power that was left out of those. And so I'm going to talk about that. So the inaugural Hardcore Homecoming event was held on June 10th, 2005. So that's Friday. Sunday, June 12th uh, is when one-night stand 2005 was held. Um, so that's two days before the WWE produced uh, ECW reunion show, if you will. Um, the cool thing about the Hardcore Homecoming uh, was the show was actually preceded by a tailgate party with fans in the parking lot, uh, which is just like, how awesome is that? And there's uh, footage from the event um, showing off some clips of the wrestlers from ECW and former employees of ECW uh, hanging out and being a part of this tailgate, but just what a cool thing. Um, like tailgating in itself can be pretty cool, 
um, and a great time of making memories and bonding. But just to have that experience in the ECW parking lot, like what a cool thing. And then to like build the anticipation and then you're all walking in together for the reunion show, the first ECW show held in that building in over four years. Um, so it's kind of reminiscent, uh, the show specifically is kind of reminiscent of territorial wrestling in the 1980s, uh, when a lot of those promotions would actually hold like barbecues before and after the event. So just like a little nice slice of what wrestling used to be, uh, before it got all corporate. Um, so none of the former ECW performers under contract to WWE appeared at the event. Uh, let me rephrase that. Those who were ECW alumni that were currently under contract by WWE were not allowed to be a part of the show. And so it, what kind of happens is you have two phenomenal events, but you have two phenomenal events that have some holes in it because of who's not there on the card. Um, so, for instance, RVD is not at Hardcore Homecoming. Tommy Dreamer is not at Hardcore Homecoming. Um, those kind of those kind of people. In flip flop, Shane Douglas is not at One Night Stand. Mick Foley is at One Night Stand on commentary, um, which is kind of a funny thing that they they brought him in last minute because he's technically not under contract with WWE at all in two thousand and five. Um, but stuff happening. But guys like Bill Alfonso, um. I mean, just some of the originals that are just noticeably missing from the show. And don't get me wrong. There's some great guys. It was a good emphasis on uh, guys like Ray Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho and Lance Storm, who'd found success in WWE, uh, putting on display. But for the diehards, there's still a lot of people missing. Um, so no WWE contracted guys who are ECW alumni were allowed to be on the show. Um, and so it was actually a series of reunion shows after the initial event. Um, and, and that tour was called the extreme reunion tour. Um, and it was supposed to just be three shows. Uh, but one of the shows was shut down, uh, right before the tour started just because there was some, kind of iffy stuff going on with one of the promoters who he found out, he claims that he was unaware that he needed a promoter's license to run a show in New York. Um, but they did do two out of those three shows and eventually would make a return in November um, for a pay-per-view, which was supposed to be the final hardcore homecoming show um, entitled November rain. Um, but they ended up having a final uh, pay-per-view called the, or I guess a final show called legends of the arena, uh, in the year 2009. Um, so if you haven't seen hardcore homecoming, I recommend you check it out. Um, so one of the most famous clips from one night saying 2005 is Sandman's entrance. Uh, the heartbreaking thing about being able to watch Sandman's entrance is if you own the DVD, you don't get to hear him come out to enter Sandman. And it's just so different without it. Like his WWE um, 
theme song isn't horrible, but it's not interesting, man. It's like it's the excitement, the chills aren't there. Um, getting to hear the crowd sing full volume uh, with this theme song is incredible because culturally, like Metallica and Enter Sandman, uh, like for the last 30 years, now 40 years, uh, how prevalent that song has been. Um, it's like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. As cool as that entrance is, and it's probably my favorite entrance in all of wrestling history, um, it's also so cool seeing him make his reunion at Hardcore Homecoming in the ECW arena with the ECW fans, with Metallica playing. Um, it's just super, super cool. Uh, so this wasn't on pay-per-view when it came out. You could get it through the website. I, be- I want to say you could watch it day of on the website. But I definitely know um, that it was released and sold on DVD exclusively through their website. You can find it online. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, you should absolutely watch it. One of the crazy things is the build main event is a three-way between Sabu, Terry Funk, and Shane Douglas, which what like, just like a powerful main event at that Um so like I said, the the success of that inaugural event sparked uh, that kind of mini reunion tour, but it got a little bit sidetracked and they do a final show um, in November and then they bring it back and do a final one several years down the line. So real quick before we uh, move on from Hardcore Homecoming, there's a documentary called Forever Hardcore um, and it interviews wrestlers who participated in the Hardcore Homecoming show. Uh, now, I forgot to mention this. Hardcore Homecoming, both this documentary and the event itself, they were promoted by no other than Jeremy Borash. And so they're done really, really well. Jeremy Borash is just such a great mind for wrestling video content and production. Um, they're just done so, so well. Um, but there's a lot of people from those shows that participated in this documentary Um, And a lot of people view this documentary, Forever Hardcore, as the counterpoint to WWE's The Rise and Fall of ECW. Shout out to Miguel um, for your autographed cover of The Rise and Fall of ECW. I'm super, super jealous about that. But what's cool is The Rise and Fall of ECW is a really, really well done um, documentary. I've yet to get my hands on a copy of the book to read the novel version. Um, I've heard that one has a lot more interviews in it. Um, So I would love to get my hands on that and read that. But the documentary itself is really good. And it's kind of the first time publicly they really dived into like, hey, Paul Heyman is taking money from Vince McMahon to keep ECW afloat. Um, with the agreement that ECW will kind of work with WWE to put out WCW, um, but also WWE gets to, you know, pick talent from ECW. So it's kind of shocking um, the way that documentary turns out, but it's cool. Obviously, everything WWE produces, and sometimes they're really liberal in uh, telling the truth because obviously everything's going to be the WWE truth. Um and so for forever hardcore to show the other side of that, it, it's super interesting. It's super cool. Um, and, and it's also cool because specifically guys like Shane Douglas, Sandman and Raven, 
um, who were integral to the history of ECW, but aren't featured at all on the rise and fall of ECW because they weren't under contract with WWE. So they weren't allowed to do it. Um, Sabu also does an interview, I believe, which it's just rare for Sabu to like do an actual interview um, and to actually speak at all. So that's super cool. And I believe um, that may be the first time, um, at least publicly in a setting like this, uh, <laughs> that New Jack ab admits to attempting to murder Vic Grimes um, in their scaffold match. Uh, so it's, I mean, what more do you expect from an ECW uh, documentary? Uh, but check out Hardcore Homecoming and check out the documentary Forever Hardcore. Now, let's talk about ECW One Night Stand 2005. ECW One Night Stand, a one-time reunion of the Lunas. The rudest, the crudest, the most insane, the most severe, the most extreme form of sports entertainment legal in the United States today. The original stars of Extreme Championship Wrestling are back for ECW's One Night Stand. Live Sunday, June 12th, only on pay-per-view. And there you go. Uh, the original airing commercial for One Night Stand 2005. So, um... What's interesting about this is just how fast the buildup for One Night Stand 2005 was. So the buildup for the pay-per-view began in the middle of May. Um, but obviously plans uh, were in the works behind the scenes for several, several months. Uh, Tommy Dreamer was in charge of organizing the event and getting ECW Originals to participate. He contacted several people, including the Sandman, Sabu, Just Incredible, and ECW commentator Joey Styles. Um, reports later stated that Paul Heyman was also working with Dreamer to help prepare the event. Other ECW-related wrestlers were later added to the pay-per-view. The event was publicly confirmed by WWE, um, oddly enough, through a Dish Network magazine in 2005, or March of 2005, I should say. In an interview with Slam Sports Today, um, or days before One Night Stand, uh, RVD actually announced that he had asked Vince McMahon about the idea of holding an ECW reunion event. Um, so there's a lot of really great interviews out there of RVD talking about that um, specifically and how he had this idea and that fans were getting like fans weren't ready to give up ECW yet. And, uh, the chance for starting to come back. A lot of the most noticeable ones are when you're watching the Dudleys in 2004 and 2005 wrestle. Every time they do tables, um, fans are chanting ECW. Um, even some of the matches with Rhino, like for the hardcore title and stuff like that, um, matches with Tajiri fans are chanting ECW, and we really hadn't had that before, you know, now in the, the smart fan era, you watch NXT or AEW and you're going to hear just tons and tons of like ironic or like, you know, smart internet chants, um, you know, the fight forevers, the, this is awesome. Um, all this kind of stuff, but that didn't it, exist back then. It was starting to happen. And so one of the ways WWE addressed that was by having 
the funeral for ECW held by Eric Bischoff. Um, and they were kind of using that to like, okay, let's, let's put ECW to rest. Obviously that only stirred the pot even more. Um, so the plans were quickly put into place to, uh, continue to test the waters, but get ECW one night stand set up and hopefully one night stand 2005, you know, if you go, it said it in the commercial that I played, but also in other ones, they advertise it as a one night only, you know, this is a once in a lifetime reunion of this scale, um, not including hardcore homecoming, but this is the final farewell to ECW. Let's re let's re relive being ECW fans in an ECW arena just one last time. But obviously that wasn't the case. So according to the reports, many people backstage were very happy with how one night stand went. Um, and many former ECW wrestlers had worked the pay-per-view described it as just a fun event, which is interesting to hear. Um, cause fun isn't always thrown around, uh, when talking about actual like TV events, um, whether it's a pay-per-view or, uh, just an episode of weekly TV. So we'll, we'll talk about numbers here in just a little bit more, but 325,000 people bought the pay the event on pay-per-view. And this is one of the first pay-per-views that WWE tried to do, like playing it through WWE.com. If you were to purchase it there. And so many tried to order it, but the website actually was shut down uh, because there was not enough bandwidth available to host all the people trying to uh, watch that online, which is crazy to think about, you know, with the WWE Network and how really nobody orders pay-per-view at all anymore, um, especially for wrestling. So it's crazy just to see, you know, 16 years... Um, how that is aged and how that's <laughs> that's not really a problem anymore. Um, so many of the individual matches on the one night stand uh, were announced weeks before the pay-per-view, uh, but none of them really got any buildup because WWE focused more on an invasion angle. And I think it was done way better than the 2001 invasion angle uh, with obviously it kind of pitted Ron SmackDown versus ECW um, and that angle kind of began on May 9th um, when Eric Bischoff uh, made the statement regarding the one night stand um, that he would squash ECW like a bug. And obviously the next week, Tajiri agreed uh, to an Extreme Rules match with Chris Benoit. And then during the middle of the match, Bischoff came out to stop it and announced anything related to ECW was banned from Raw. Like what? I like, I can just hear the, the crowd reaction in my head. Like it's like, Hey, we're getting a taste of ECW. And now big, bad Eric Bischoff is coming out and saying like, Hey, we're not, this is raw. We're not going to have ECW on here. Um, and so they do a funeral for ECW on May 23rd, but that's when Vince comes out and he talks about his support for the ECW reunion. And, uh, his financial interest in bringing it back. Uh, so Paul Heyman came out and reminded Vince McMahon, uh, that even though Heyman didn't own ECW, he still had control. Um, and Heyman also said that he welcomed Bischoff's invasion, claiming you may light a fire that you can't put out. Um, and then Heyman lit the funeral wreath ablaze. 
and obviously they start bringing they the following week they do the rematch between Benoit and Tajiri um but then it just gets crazy and you start watching stuff uh where guys like Edge start getting involved um and Gene Snitsky start getting involved guys who are WWE superstars through and through no ECW background start getting involved and just really punishing ECW wrestlers and it gets crazier and crazier as even at over on SmackDown, you have JBL uh, and Kurt Angle talking about how they're going to show up at the pay-per-view and interrupt it. Um, and Angle goes as far as to even beat up Taz um, and leaving a bloody in the ring. And my favorite, this is one of my favorite visuals in w- modern WWE history. I say modern as this is, uh, 16 years in the past. Um, but it is the go home episode of raw. Um, and so you have just this crazy match where you've got guys like, uh, Maven and JBL and Carlito and Matt Morgan and Kurt Angle, all these guys. And all of a sudden people from ECW start showing up and it starts and just becomes this crazy, crazy brawl um, in the ring. And as Raw goes off air, uh, as this brawl between the ECW originals and WWE invaders happens, uh, ECW stands on top before everyone else holding ECW banners uh, over the rope. And that's the final visual you get right as Raw's going off air before the pay-per-view. And what a cool visual it is. I can distinctly remember. I can't remember if Rhino uh, is holding the banner or if he's right next to it, but he's like pounding his chest and just is like, okay, like, hey, ECW isn't going to just lie down and stay dead. They have the opportunity to come back and they're take full advantage of it. Like Paul Heyman said, WWE may have lit a fire that they can't put out. Um, a cool note... Uh, and I, I need to see if I can find a copy of this anywhere. So before w, Raw is still on Spike TV at this time, um, and before the event aired live on pay-per-view, an episode uh, of a TV show called Extreme Heat aired on Spike TV, showing footage from the build-up to the event. Um, and this event uh, started with a speech from Joey Styles, who is greeted with an ECW chant, um, and then welcomes fans to One Night Stand, and invites McFoley to join him for commentary for the event. So you see that on Extreme Heat, but it also airs on the pay-per-view as well. Just a cool thing. I would love to see exactly like the video packages that they used um, for Extreme Heat and what that looked like. So the overall reaction to the pay-per-view was really good. I think a lot of people were nervous uh, to see how it would go. I think a lot of people and WWE thought it'd kind of be a one and done deal, but it kind of just sparked more interest than ever. Now WWE puts out the rise and fall of ECW. Now WWE starting to release ECW merch and really capitalize on that. Um, so I mentioned earlier, the pay-per-view one night stand 2005 had 325,000, uh, pay-per-view buys just to put that in perspective. So judgment day, which was the pay-per-view Judgment Day 2005, the pay-per-view before One Night Stand, uh, received 220,000 pay-per-view buys. 
And then Vengeance 2005, uh, which followed One Night Stand later in the month, had 420,000 pay-per-view buys. Um, those are, I mean, those are great numbers for pay-per-views, especially when they're doing Raw and SmackDown pay-per-views. Uh, I mean, those are great, great numbers. So now that we've talked about Hardcore Homecoming, now we've talked about One Night Stand 2005. Uh, we're going to talk about One Night Stand 2006. I'm not going to talk about the matches that are on there. You guys need to go watch those for yourselves. But I just want to talk about how this came to be and what it led to. So let's talk about my personal favorite, ECW One Night Stand 2006. The event. ECW One Night Stand. The champion. The champ is here. The challenge. I'm cashing in the money in the bank. With a home turf advantage. I'd like to see this take place where the conditions work extremely well in my favor. RVD. John Cena. The WWE Championship. ECW One Night Stand. Live Sunday, June 11th, only on pay-per-view. Man, do I love One Night Stand 2006. Because um, for me personally, this is, a, this is at the time in my wrestling fandom that I was like all in. Like I've jumped off the diving board. I'm in the deep end. Give me any and all wrestling content you can provide me. Let me consume it all. I'm reading magazines. I'm watching DVDs that I can get my hands on. I'm watching everything on TV. I'm trying my very best to learn the history of professional wrestling. And, uh, well, now here I am <laughs> several years later um, talking to you about how uh, crucial this time in my fandom was. Here's how crazy it was. So the bill, the main event for One Night Stand 2006 is RVD cashing in Money in the Bank and challenging for the WWE title um, at One Night Stand. And so this is the second Money in the Bank cash-in so the only the only context we have is Edge cashed it in on Cena earlier in the year um after winning it in 2005 he cashes it in January of 06 and it's like oh so you can literally use it whenever you want even when the champion's beaten so now that RVD has it we assume he's going to do the same thing and out of left field RVD says hey here's your heads up you know an x amount of weeks June 11th I'm cashing in money in the bank and it's like can can he do that? And absolutely he can, uh, as we've seen both happen. And ironically enough, John Cena, when owning money, the bank would cash it in on CM Punk in a similar style by saying, Hey, next week I'm cashing in money in the bank. Um, so whenever that happened specifically with Cena cashing in, it was, I don't know if that was an official nod to this, but that's what I'm going to pretend it was. Cause it makes me feel good. Um, to think about it like that. This is how much this event meant to me, and specifically this rivalry, as it was something I'd never seen a crowd act like this before. Um, <laughs> hearing uh, some of the things they chanted, hearing the reactions to other wrestlers, and here's John Cena, who's supposed to be like your up-and-coming super babyface, uh, like the person who's going to step up to be... Uh, the next uh, rock or the next Hogan or the next stone cold. And he's being treated like the number one 
enemy in ECW territory. The way the fans are throwing his shirt back, the giant, if Cena wins, we riot sign. Um, and John Cena uh, did an interview uh, shortly after that talking about what happened. Uh, it was actually on his web show, Five Questions with the Champ. Um, and he talks about how they had his bags loaded in the truck or in a car. Um, and as soon as the show was over and he went backstage, they had the back door open and ready that the car door opened and he ran dove in and they peeled out, uh, cause there were fans waiting for him to make sure that Cena didn't make it home. Um, and like, that's that good old school heat that I love. Um, I was talking to some buddies about this the other day, like, I don't know if a real heel can exist in, in the modern era. Obviously there's MJF, um, but there's even some restraints he holds that, that other heels wouldn't in the past. And what I mean by that is what is a heel anymore? Is the heel a bad guy that you hate and you don't want to win and you want to see him lose. So you're willing to pay money to watch them lose. Or is the heel, the person that you want to quote, uh, on Instagram, uh, in your bio and you want to quote with your buddies and you want to wear his t-shirts and, and try and pretend to be like him. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think the heels should be hated. Um, and John Cena was hated this night. And so going back to how important this was to me, I actually wrote, um, sometime in high school, it was one of the, like, you know, you have all these, you know, you don't really have like finals in high school, but it's like, Hey, this is to prove that, um, your English comprehensive skills and reading comprehensive skills are adequate enough to receive a high school education. And they had a thing where it's like, write a prompt about bravery or someone being brave. And I was like, okay, here we go. And I wrote about John Cena standing up to the ECW originals during the contract sign leading up to this event where even though he knows he's outnumbered and he's probably going to get it, he says, well, if I'm going down, I'm going out swinging. Um, and he does, and he gets cracked over the head with uh, the Sandman Singapore cane. Um, but all that to say, a one-night stand in 2006, um, it does a couple of things differently, but it does them well. There's a lot more buildup because people were still hungry for more ECW content and WWE at this time realized like, Hey, there's enough here that I think we can do more. There's some opportunity to make some money. And so, uh, WWE without us knowing it had the plans of resurrecting ECW full time. And so the buildup for One Night Stand occurred on both Raw and SmackDown heading to the pay-per-view, but the buildup behind the scenes began several months earlier because uh, WWE was planning, like I said, to bring ECW back full-time. And the news the WWE was planning to bring back ECW was leaked in the middle of April. Um, so that's the middle of April, getting ready uh, right around WrestleMania 22, and then One Night Stand is June 11th. Um, Vince decided to revive ECW as a full-time brand, making it the third brand. Um, and reports beforehand stated that WWE was preparing to bring ECW back immediately after WrestleMania 22. Um, WWE opted to cancel Velocity and replace it with ECW, which is interesting to think about. Um, and now as we see what ECW, the relaunch ECW beca became, um, it shows you that they really did 
from the get-go had the plans for it to be kind of a developmental uh, brand, if you will, an opportunity much like heat and much like velocity for uh, kind of mid-card stars to polish themselves a little bit more, but for local talent, extra talent to uh, have the opportunity to, to grow and polish their skills as well. Um, so that's interesting to, to think about just that. That's why velocity, um, got scrapped. Um, and so the new brand was officially coming or confirmed by WWE on May 25th. So still, uh, about half a month away from one night stand with its debut show airing on June 13th. Uh, just two days, which would be Tuesday um, after One Night Stand on the Sci-Fi Channel. <clears throat> and obviously the main feud heading into this was seen in RVD, which RVD had never been world champion. He deserved it. And you had a lot of people um, really, really getting behind RVD. Not just ECW fans, but longtime wrestling fans are like, no, like RVD deserves it. Like everyone's got their shot. Cena got his shot. Shawn Michaels got a shot. Batista got a shot. Like now it's time for RVD to get his chance. Um, and I, I encourage you if you have not watched 05 or 06, um, one night stands you need to they're incredible they're worth watching um it just feels real and it feels authentic um it doesn't feel over the top produced like they're there to do exactly what they're supposed to do um and it's cool you also get a couple of faces that weren't on the 2005 card most notably uh, would be Terry Funk, <clears throat> excuse me, as you have uh, Edge and Mick Foley versus Tommy Dreamer and Terry Funk in a hardcore match, um, which this is just a crazy time. Um, I'm re I'm currently reading through Mick Foley's book, The Hardcore Diaries, and he talks a lot about this build and um, want, what he wanted out of it and all this stuff. And it's just super cool to see exactly um, how much it meant to everyone involved in this match. Uh, for those who, you know, had the ECW rep, uh, excuse me, those that had the ECW reputation, uh, needing to, uh, reaffirm that. And for those who wanted it and wanted to prove that they could hang with the, the land of extreme had the opportunity, um, to do that. There's just a lot of cool matchup. There's a dream matchup. I would say of EC or of ECW of Rey Mysterio versus Taz for the world title or EC Ray versus Sabu. Oh man, guys, I'm sorry. I'm struggling here. Uh, but we're going to be professional. It's a lot of information. I, I hope you're tracking with me and Sabu versus, uh, Ray Mysterio. Like that's a dream match. I remember when it was announced as like, I could see Sabu as world champion. I don't know what that looks like for SmackDown, but I want to see that that happen. Um, it also led to just a lot of cool crossover in the fact that they did um, the Wednesday before the pay-per-view, they did WWE versus ECW head-to-head, -head, had a couple of uh, matches on there, a lot of packages, but the best part was at the end, they did a ECW versus WWE Battle Royale um, and I want to say it was like maybe it's 10 people from ECW, five from SmackDown, five from Raw. 
And it comes down to Kurt Angle, Randy Orton, and Big Show. Kurt Angle is obviously Team ECW at this point. He's just been drafted. Um, And Kurt Angle gets dumped out by Orton. They're cheering. They're celebrating. Big Show rips off his raw shirt to reveal ECW. And now he's part of them. For me, it was crazy because I was hyped. I was like, hey, Randy Orton's finally like back on Raw. He's not on SmackDown anymore. And then now Big Show is leaving to go to ECW as Kurt Angle has gone to ECW. And I just don't know how to comprehend it. Um, but that was super cool. Um, the invasions on both Raw and SmackDown that were revisited, but also just some of the matches, like the fact we got John Cena versus Sabu for the WWE Championship in an Extreme Lumberjack match. Like how that's so random but also so cool. And you get like Kurt Angle versus Orton on behalf of like raw versus ECW. Um, I just, this was just such a fun time. Um, so the overall reaction to this pay-per-view was also very, very good. Um, but the buy rates did drop a little bit, uh, from the previous year. Um, so they went from 325,000, in 2005 to 280,000 in 2006. Um, so a little bit of a drop, uh, but still, still like solid numbers in terms of pay-per-view, especially compared to what we're working with today. Um, like I can't say it enough. If you've not watched either of these pay-per-views, you need to watch them. Um, obviously, Two days later, after the event, WWE brings back ECW. And right from the get-go, it's like, oh, like here comes the zombie. And it kind of shows you some of the creative direction. Um, in December of 2006, at ECW's first pay-per-view, well, I should say their only pay-per-view, um, December to dismember, Paul Heyman quit during the show. Um, it's regarded as one of the worst WWE pay-per-views of all time. Um there's still some good moments on it, um, but overall, it just showed you that WWE was not interested in ECW being ECW, but they were more interested in ECW being the third WWE brand, more so being a little bit more pumped up uh, velocity, which whenever Sunday Night Heat originally came about, like there were some good matches on it, like Shotgun Saturday Night, there were some good matches but then it slowly just becomes like, eh, well, the people who aren't on Raw, let's just put them on there. Same can be said with main event and whenever they brought back WWE superstars. Like, at first, they hype it up. It's like, hey, like, I can just turn on this show and I can watch, you know, Kane versus Edge just in the middle of the week for fun. But now it's like, okay, cool. I can watch um, Mustafa Ali... Uh, versus Umberto, both on Raw and both on main event now. Um, and it's just, I don't know. Like, don't pretend it's, it's something that it's not. ECW, it did have its moments as it fully embraced, like, hey, no, we are going to be the developmental brand. I mean, that's when Christian came back to WWE. That's where you got Jack Swagger. That's where you got Sheamus. Um, Brian Kendrick getting a huge push. Ezekiel Jackson. Um, a lot of cool stuff like Zack Ryder um, getting his one-legged tights and kind of the major bros uh, starting to step up in uh, 
some individuality after being the edgeheads. Uh, just some cool stuff. Tommy Dreamer's on there consistently. Goldust coming back and doing great. Uh, CM Punk and kind of his rise before going to <clears throat> Raw and SmackDown. So there's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Mark Henry being world champion. Uh, Kane being ECW world champion. I I loved WWE ECW for what it was supposed to be, not what I wanted it to be. Because obviously the first couple episodes, they've got the old school entrance and it's like, man, okay, this is going to be awesome. And then it's like, okay, um, we're not going to have like the ECW quality of matches, whether that's like, you know, a technical match, a high flying match, or like a brutal match. We're not going to have ECW style matches. We're not going to have ECW style promos, but we are going to have, you know, strip teases. And it's just like, man, like, <laughs> like you're, you're missing the point. I, I think it's the same way with the attitude era like people who are like we need to bring back the attitude era and it's like we always get like the the sexual stuff from the attitude era but we don't get like the entertainment as far as like promos or matches go um or even just like storylines and, and rivalries in general that's always confused me it's like hey like you know bring back the attitude and it's like okay like Here's what you get for attitude. We're going to have Carmella start doing like really sensual like uh, poses and like strip teases uh, on SmackDown for her vignettes. And it's like, okay, but I meant more of like, give me like some Stone Cold versus Rock like promos uh, or, or storytelling like that. And it's like, hey. Okay, but what if Bobby Lashley and Lana started having an affair and we just made it hypersexual for you guys? And it's like, uh, okay, but what about Undertaker uh, and Kane level of character uh, design and storytelling? And we don't have that. You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody wants to be uh, r- a real person and, you know be the average person who made their dream come true. And I guess that's cool. Uh, but give me the larger than life stuff. That's going to keep me glued to my TV. Um, uh, cause I get enough of everyday life and everyday people every day. I, I need star power. I need real main events. I need something that's like, Hey, I like, I'm not going to miss that show. Like, I don't even want to record it and watch it back. I don't want to watch it a day later. I don't want to <clears throat> watch it later that night after it's aired. I want to watch it live as it's happening because I can't afford um to risk missing that. One night stand 05 and 06 brought that to the table. They made it special. When RVD beat John Cena for the WWE championship, all the they made it clear during the match like, hey, if RVD leaves with the company's title, the company doesn't have a title. And the fact that SmackDown side was on the line too is like, hey, it's very well that the show could end and WWE doesn't have any world champions, but ECW is both of them. That made the next night of Raw, that made the debut episode of ECW, that next week's episode of SmackDown must watch because you had no idea what was going to happen. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I hope it hasn't been too stale or too boring. Um, I love talking about ECW and 
like, let's talk about ECW. I wish I could have just like an ECW side podcast. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's a lot of work. And I don't know if anyone wants to do that with me. Quite frankly, what we've come up with is since you are able to regurgitate, you know, on command, um, <laughs> it, it just seems to me that, that, that it's pretty logical that you should be puke. It's all supposed to be fun. The Rock is the most electrifying man in sports entertainment today. It's not supposed to be real. <laughs> You're not going to be scared, right? It's going to be okay. You can go on back to the future. You can do anything. Right? Right, But behind the scenes, it's a whole different story. I hope everyone feels like they got their money's worth out there. And for the first time ever, you'll know the real truth. He's got a puke! He's got a puke! He's got a puke! It is showtime! The hard facts. Really worried about him as far as his health. You need a new knee now. She's going to live here the rest of her life, probably, and uh, have seven kids and uh, seven husbands, and she'll always remember the nightmare. The family pain. You make it sound like you don't even want to live. There's times I know. There's a lot of times I know. The real danger. Shut up! I'm a very violent person, and I'll hurt you. So I get paid to what I'm doing. It's like any entertainer. Come face to face with the wrestling world the way it's never been seen before. Wall Street for Wall Street wasn't fun. Wrestling is fun. It's still hard after all these years. We did it! I just don't want to hurt no more. This is the damn Beyond the Mat. I think we touched a lot of people. Yeah. If you don't mind me saying. Hello and welcome to the Brothers in Cafe podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mr. Rasslin, Lena Bumgarner. I hope you all are doing wonderful. It's good to be back after being gone last week. Um, so historically, summer is super busy uh, for me. That's when I get a lot of my uh, music bookings done and a lot of my traveling done uh, for work. And that was the case this this last week, and <clears throat> shout out to El Gigante, Jake Hill. I know he's working super hard with his job, and they're changing up some rules on him, and he, he's trucking through and continuing to do things. Because at the end of the day, we got to provide for our families and do what we got to do to just keep going forward. Um, and so he was tied up with that last week, and he's tied up with it this week as well. So I'm here to present to you today another installment of Mr. Rasslin's historical deep dives. So deep dive number one was over backyard wrestling. Deep dive number two um, was over wrestling with shadows. Um, you got to hear my deep dive and, and paired with Jake's subcast, as I like to call it. Um, Confessions of a Wrestling Tape Trader. And we had that awesome double feature i think that's one of the best uh most solid things we've put out so if you haven't listened to that yet please listen to that join the patreon for five dollars and you could watch that 
as well. Um, but I think the two go hand in hand really well. So today we were talking about yet another film, and we're not always going to talk about wrestling films, um, but this one just felt right. And uh, I'll get into it here at the end, um, something that has happened with this particular um, movie we're going to talk about and the connection it has. But today we were talking about Beyond the Mat. Uh, now, Wrestling with Shadows is the most unique pro wrestling documentary in itself, but I have to say that um, Beyond the Mat is easily the best pro wrestling documentary there is. It's obviously the most mainstream one, um, but it's just like, it's what you would expect from a mainstream pro wrestling documentary. Um there's some good highlights to it, but also it, it kind of just shows like of the crazy um, just wild side of pro wrestling. And we'll dive into that here in just a little bit. Um, but it's like, also, what would you expect? Uh, you're trying to uh, show some humanity and personalize uh, these larger than life characters. Um but when you try and personalize crazy larger than life stuff, and that's kind of the focus, um, I mean, you see what happens. So we've got a lot of content we're gonna we're gonna go over. Uh, so just just be prepared for that. Um, if you're watching the Patreon uh, video version, then you're gonna see my notes. Uh, I believe I've got four pages set up. So I'm gonna pull those up at this time uh mainly so i can read them to you guys um but you can follow along as well if you're listening thank you for listening we value uh your consumption of this podcast whether that is with your eyes and ears or if it's just with the ears uh share this podcast with a friend word of mouth is still the most powerful way um to market and to share and to grow so we encourage you if you've got friends who like wrestling or used to like wrestling share this podcast with them and let's talk about why we like wrestling. So without further ado, here is Mr. Wrestling's historical deep dive into Beyond the Mat. So Beyond the Mat is a 1999 documentary directed by Barry W. Blaustein. I believe that's how his name is pronounced. If it's not, I apologize. The movie focuses on the lives of professional wrestlers outside of the ring, primarily Mick Foley, Terry Funk, and Jake Roberts, as well as some aspiring wrestlers. It heavily focuses on the World Wrestling Federation, WWF at the time, and follows extreme championship wrestling during its rise in popularity in many other independent wrestlers and organizations. Now, notice we haven't mentioned WCW. WCW is not present in the film. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. The film was originally released in American theaters in March 2000 and was later released on DVD. Um, the film begins with director Barry Blaustein discussing his love for professional wrestling and clips of him viewing employees of the World Wrestling Federation and Extreme Championship Wrestling. He then decides to travel the United States over a three-year period, endeavoring to understand the mindset of someone who would voluntarily choose to become a professional wrestler. Blaustein interviews a wide variety of wrestling personalities and ascertains their motivations. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, this number came up as I was doing this research that uh, he says it's a three-year journey, but there's footage um, from three to five years if you just actually look um, at the footage that is 
you know, featured in the film. It's like some of it, it's like, hey, that's that's not 97, 98, 99. That's, you know, that's 96, that's 95. Some of it even looks like 94. Um, and that could be archival footage that maybe WWF uh, and ECW gave them at the time. But just to throw that out there, that's why um, it's not that it's inconsistent. It's that there's just a wide variety, which is covered um, in the film. And what's interesting, and I believe I touch on this later on in the notes, um, but it's kind of like at the beginning of this process, uh, Blaustein, he wasn't necessarily super upfront about him being a fan of professional wrestling. Um, and he was really harboring on the side of, you know, being journalistic and, and doing just this deep dive into um, the lives of professional wrestling and trying to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and add, add some humanity, add some uh, personalization, if you will, uh, to these individuals. Um, but obviously, it's clear if you're a fan of wrestling or not. Um, it's kind of like once that gate opens and that knowledge starts coming out, it's like, okay, it's one thing to know who Hulk Hogan and Stone Cold are because of culture, but to be like, oh, yeah, man. I mean, my favorite thing is, uh, you remember the episode of uh, Monday Night Raw whenever uh, Beaver Cleavage came out and he he's fighting in the ring. Oh, but you got to remember how prominent Gilbert was every single week. And he was The fact that he was actually a Ninja Turtle, but he also wrestled as Dwayne Gill as a job guy early on. It's like, hold up where did you get that from? Like, how long have you been watching? Or someone to be like, oh, yeah, like Stone Cold, he used to wrestle in Dallas. Uh, and it's like, really? So you, you you can't hide being a wrestling fan. Trust me, as someone who <laughs> tries to hide being a wrestling fan uh, in certain situations in life, uh, probably job interviews isn't the time to bring it up unless it's a wrestling-related job. Then absolutely go for it. Um, so it's interesting that that comes up, but also it's a good thing. Cause it's like, we've seen what non-wrestling fans do for wrestling. Um, one of the worst examples is look at Mick Foley's, I believe it's a 60 minute interview. Um, and they talk about the dangers of backyard wrestling and they completely butcher his interview. Um, they, he gives his appropriate answers and they make sense. They work great. And then on the cutting room floor, they chop it up and push it to fit their narrative. But that's a whole other discussion that's covered in uh, the first deep dive over backyard wrestling. Um, so the film begins uh, with director Barry Blaustein discussing his love for professional wrestling and clips of him viewing employees. Uh, now, now understand this. So he hit it at the beginning of the process of starting this. Obviously, if you put in the DVD right now and you watch it, I think it's still up on Netflix. It's on YouTube for sure, um, free with ads. Um, right off the bat, he's open about it in the film. Um, but my understanding from just what I've seen is he nece he wasn't necessarily upfront about it at the beginning as he was starting to uh, to pitch all the stuff. So Blaustein, he focuses on three famous wrestlers 
uh, one at the height of his career, that being Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind, one contemplating retirement, <laughs> Terry Funk, and one at a career low, and that's Jake the Snake Roberts. He begins by following Funk, a 53-year-old man in need of knee surgery who appears uh, unable to retire despite the mounting toll wrestling's taking on his body. Boston follows him as he complete, competes at hardcore wrestling promotion ECW Wrestling's first pay-per-view event, barely legal, that was in 1997. Um, Funk's sometimes in-ring rival Foley is profiled next. Uh, he has been taking increasingly risky falls or bumps and blows to the head, and at one point is heard talking incoherently as the result of a fall from his Hell in the Cell match against Undertaker, King of the Ring, 1998, um, which briefly rendered him unconscious. We've all seen that clip, the infamous clip of Foley going off the cell and then also going through the roof of it um, for the second bump. Um, clips of Foley with his wife and children are spliced with the clips of him risking his body for the sport. Later in the film's climax, his wife and young uh, children watch in horror from the front of the audience during Foley's I Quit match with The Rock at Royal Rumble 1999. Um, and this is where I believe it's either 13 or 14 uh, straight up unprotected chair shots to the head um, by The Rock. Um, you know, he's not able to, to cover it with his forearms or with his hands. He's just straight up taking it. Um, and we see the effects of that. So lastly, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts is a wrestler whose height of popularity was in the 1980s and is a crack cocaine addict, estranged from his daughter, although he was once one of the most famous wrestlers in America, performing in front of tens of thousands of fans. He's now wrestling in small-town venues in the course of the film. Roberts is shown smoking crack cocaine in a hotel uh, room while attempting to reconcile with his daughter, as well as musing aloud about his increasingly illicit sexual uh, dalliances while traveling. And here's what's interesting is seeing how much of these three people have evolved and where life has taken them um, since this. Uh, I, I think we might touch on it a little bit, but just in case we don't, uh, the saddest part for me um, about all this is that my favorite character in the film, um, Dennis Stamp is no longer with us. He passed away a couple of years ago. He's got a great book. I encourage you to read it. Um, man, if we could, if timelines were different, Dennis Stamp would be booked on Brothers and KFA podcast. I would have booked you. You would have been our main event. Um, so the, the careers of these three individuals of these successful wrestlers are contrasted with those of wrestlers who have not yet achieved comparable success, such as two men getting started in the sport of wrestling, that being Tony Jones and Michael Modest, a.k.a. Mike Modest, who are granted a tryout match for the WWF. Now, I want you to think about this um, as covered in the backyard wrestling deep dive as well. There is a little bit of boom with independent wrestling, but not much at this point. I mean, you have the occasional spot shows that have carried over from territory days of people who used to be into promoting, just trying to just ride a little bit of the momentum of really WWF uh, and WCW at this time. Um, but it's interesting how, how negatively, um, 
Jake Roberts being on these independents has shown is that it's a step down to whereas nowadays, uh, for most places, uh, you can make a living. If you're consistently booked regularly on the independents, you can make a, a living. Here's what I mean by that. If you're traveling multiple states, if you're traveling across the country, like if you're getting paid for travel and for being on the show, you it is possible to make a living, um, but not everyone makes it to that level right off the bat. Um, and there's certainly the people that, you know, you get a hot dog and a handshake and that's it. Or uh, I love this um, because it's so prevalent in the music business. It's like, hey, well, we can't pay you, but I'll pay you an exposure. How's that? It's like, that doesn't mean jack squat. Um, so just interesting how times have progressed um, as now it's been over 20 years since this came out. Um, so back to the tryout match. Um, also, fun note, uh, Darren Drozdov, a formal in it, NFL football player is shown. We all know him as Draws. Um, and his most famous scene uh, where he's in the office interviewing with Vince McMahon and Draws claims he can vomit at will and it, Vince calls him out uh, and puts a bucket in front of him and has him demonstrate his ability to throw up, um, which that ability uh, earned him the ring name Puke uh, when Vince plans to use part of Draws new in-ring persona um and obviously he signs with the wwf um by the end of the film it is unfortunately uh revealed um that he was paralyzed in an in-ring accident with d'lo brown where it was a botched power bomb um which is super super unfortunate but that just goes to show you the reality of the risk of of some of these moves and i, I say this all the time not everybody can play in the nfl not everybody can play in the MLB or the NBA. Not everybody should be a wrestler. Um, I think it was Dusty Rhodes who said it. If you don't know how to do that move, don't do it. Uh, you know. And I'm not saying that was the incident, but I'm just saying, uh, I mean, even here locally in Oklahoma, a couple of years ago, we had someone uh, pass away because of an unfortunate wrestling stunt that was done inside of a bar as part of a comedy show. Um, and somebody's life was lost uh, due to untrained people doing things they weren't qualified to do in a place that wasn't qualified to do such a thing. Um, so it's just super unfortunate, but that's the, the that's the reality uh, of wrestling in the wrestling business. So Blaustein decided to do a documentary about professional wrestling after being outed as a closet professional wrestling fan, right? His original budget was 500000 which was funded by the company Imagine, um, who was one of the main production companies with that, as well as Lionsgate. And, um, it's just interesting because that's not a lot of money um, for the sake of modern movies, especially at that time. But... Obviously, you see it put to really good use, and we'll talk about uh, the money that was made as a result. Um, so he shot footage for the film over a span of three to five years. I talked about this just a little bit ago. Um, and what a cool thing for somebody, just as a side note, for a fan to get this opportunity to from a major production company um, like Lionsgate and imagine to uh, trust you by investing their money into you uh, to attempt to make a hit, but to make one about professional wrestling. I mean, that's a, I think that's a literal dream for 
us to because there's just not a lot of good mainstream pro wrestling stuff just in general um i've wondered for years and obviously there's the rumors of the hulk hogan biopic and the vince mcmahon biopic uh, that allegedly was going to happen but it's like why is wwe studios like why are they not at the forefront like why why are they continuing to make very 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 average uh action movies and comedy movies um, instead of like, hey, we own the rights to everything, to all the footage. Why don't we just release the greatest wrestling documentary of all time? And they do great wrestling documentaries, uh, formerly on the network now on Peacock and with some of the DVD sets. But it's like, hey, you have the ability, like, why don't you pump something out in theaters um, and take advantage of that to create buzz and mainstream that's not my decision I, I i don't know what the case is so i don't know so wcw uh, hasn't been mentioned yet it's not really mentioned in the film and that's because they refused to participate in the film um when blasting approached the the wwf about involving the company in 1997 vince mcmahon uh he gave full access to WWF uh, uh, for Blasting and for his filming crew. And you've got to think at that time, just given where ratings are, um, what's going on in the Monday Night Wars and stuff like that, to see uh, that Vince is seeing this as an opportunity of, hey, WCW, for whatever reason, said they're not going to participate in this. Maybe it's because of, uh, you know, conflict of interest because of, uh, well, like Turner and Warner Brothers and all that kind of stuff. There's a little bit of fishiness there, but you have to wonder if Vince sees this as an opportunity. It's like, oh, okay, like they're, they're not going to be a part of it. Okay, we're going to give them, we're going to be so much more on the opposite way and give them full access to everything. Um, and hopefully this is going to help us for the best. It's also interesting, you know, we find out that Vince was keeping ECW afloat um and writing checks to to paul Heyman, um and, and now we all know this uh, basically to help put wcw out of competition by keeping extra competition afloat um and then harvesting talent from ecw um so it's interesting that these two are working together now and i would love 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 to find out um because i couldn't really find anything uh that really touched on this, but to touch on the relationship of ECW and WWF at this time in 97 and wondering, did Vince and Paul Heyman talk at all about beyond the mat? Did they talk at all about their two companies being featured um, and taking advantage of why of WCW not being featured in it? That's what I'm super curious about if you can find anything send that my way um like i said i tried to look and didn't really see a lot um obviously we get comments of people about the impact of beyond the bat but not really seeing the behind the scenes planning of it um so back to that vince gave full access uh to blousine and his company um, but later, uh, he tried to pull out of the deal. And we'll talk about that here in just a few moments. Um, so let's focus on Jake the Snake for a little bit. So he claims he was told the film was going to be used to help children, but that never transpired. Um, Blaustein claims uh, the opposite. 
in response to why he thought Roberts made the allegations. Blastine responded, I don't know why Jake looking for publicity for himself. Maybe, I don't know. He was probably with reality or he has problems with reality. And I wish Jake all the best. And you have to understand, uh, obviously here in 2021, Jake the Snake is sober. He's been sober for several years, which is awesome because this is what really kicked off the whole thing of like, hey, whenever Jake the Snake dies, it's not going to be a surprise. Like, it's not really going to affect people. Yes, it's going to be sad, but it won't be a shock um, because it's like, what else do you expect by someone who's so open about their drug habits? Um, And to see where he is now, I mean, it's incredible. Um, Same with Scott Hall. The fact that it's like, he just assumed like, yeah, those are the jokes of wrestling. Those are kind of like the iron cheeks of wrestling where they were great at one point in their life. And now they're just a joke drug addict and it's sad and it's pitiful. Um, But to see where they're at now, uh, it's incredible. It's inspiring. Um, I like, I selfishly would love to see like Jake, the snake uh, rewatch beyond the mat and, and talk about it and to give his thoughts now um, being sober, seeing that he's on the other side of that, um, and just really reflect on it. Um, and you have to understand that just the degree of manipulation that can come from a drug addict, obviously, like I'm, I'm assuming by the comments Jake made about how he was promised that the film was going to be used to help children. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it was probably him just fishing to try and get more money uh, by creating controversy and saying that he was lied to. Um, Because if the public hears like, hey, this was supposed to help children, it's not. There's a pretty good chance people are going to jump on board with that. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, And drug addicts probably aren't the most reliable people. Um, so it's interesting that those comments were made and obviously they have not held up and Jake's a different person. Um, so beyond the mat, as I mentioned earlier, it was released in March of 2000. It was later put on DVD. Um, but what's awesome is they ended up also doing, uh, an unrated director's cut, which is the one I have. It's a special edition. Um, and it's actually called the special ringside edition in it. Uh, that one, so the original DVD released in 2000 um, and the special edition released in 2004 and the special edition, um, it features a new introduction and extra footage as well, which is always awesome as well as a fun, like kind of round table interview with uh, Jesse Ventura and Mick Foley, um, which is an interesting combo. Um, but for the, the time uh, where Jesse Ventura was in 2004, that he's removed from WWE, even though, um, he does uh, WrestleMania 20 in 2004. Uh, the fact that he's removed and he's just very upfront and honest about the wrestling business and uh, the bad parts and the good parts. So let's go back to Vince wanting to pull out of that deal after giving full access. So after viewing the film, um, Vince removed all advertising for it from WWF broadcast, meaning um, so in between episode or in between commercial breaks on raw and pay-per-views and stuff like that, he was not allowing Lionsgate, um, to distribute that. And so as a result, Lionsgate films, the film's distributor considered filing a lawsuit 
uh, for restraint of trade, uh, which led spokespeople for the WWF, however, claimed that advertising was pulled because of a policy against advertising for other wrestling companies or ventures. Once again, very interesting because ECW is featured in this. Uh, and so on one hand, it's like, hey, like we can't air it because ECW's in it. That's a conflict of interest for us as the WWF. But knowing what we know now, it's like, dude, that's like, uh, th- that's full of crap uh, because WWF, Vince McMahon himself is funding ECW, keeping ECW afloat. Um which is it's just crazy it shows you like technically yes it's manipulation but also it shows you the genius good or bad of vince mcmahon and just his ability to be like okay they're wanting to sue us because we're not letting them advertise like we originally said they would how do we get well it's a conflict of interest i mean he's a smart businessman love him or hate him um that's why (laughs) with the worst product they've ever put out, they're still having record-breaking profits and their stock is worth more than ever. Um, It's just insane. Um, So that happens. Uh, Blaustein also claimed that McMahon ordered his wrestlers, including Mick Foley, not to speak about the film publicly. Foley, however, did appear on Larry King Live with Blaustein to help promote the film. As a result, the tagline of the movie became, and it's on the DVD case, the movie Vince McMahon didn't want you to see. Roddy Piper also appeared with Blaustein on Larry King Live to discuss the professional wrestling business. He called the movie the best documentary ever made on professional wrestling. Likewise, Hulk Hogan expressed an interest in being in the next wrestling documentary should Blaustein make one. So Hogan is still with WCW at this time. And it's crazy. Like, Think about the flip side of WCW would have done this if you would have had Hulk Hogan focus as your main star. Um, you know, have young and upcoming guys maybe feature Chris Jericho as your up and coming young guy, and then maybe Ric Flair as the guy on his way out. Obviously, even though Flair was nowhere near on his way out, um, or even Dusty, just just what a a cool unique story that could have been. Um, but obviously it didn't happen, and it's not going to happen now. But it's just so interesting. Also, like, what a Hogan thing to do to where, like, you see, like, the noise and the success, and he's like, hey, count me in for the second one. And then it doesn't ever happen. Um, Like, he always talks about, like, hey, um, I'm good for one more WrestleMania. Like, he's been saying that since his last WrestleMania. Um, Never happens. Um, You know, hey, I've still got one more run in me. I've still got this. Like, I still create one more moment. And it's like... It's probably not going to happen. Um, in June 2011, uh, so 10 years, uh, honestly, from now, because it's June, um, Barry Blostein did an extensive one-hour interview on Review Away uh, with John Pollock discussing the problems of putting the documentary together with Vince McMahon's blessing. In the interview, Blostein revealed that after the first viewing, it was actually Linda McMahon who was more upset than Vince due to the portrayal of the company in the documentary and not emphasizing the fun in professional wrestling. Um, Blaustein also mentioned problems with certain talents, such as Steve Austin refusing to appear on camera and Pitbull number two in ECW once throwing a trash can at the crew and then suggesting the incident to be used in 
the film. It's so interesting uh, because there is star power missing. So you have Terry Funk, you have Mick Foley and Jake the Snake Roberts. I'm going to grab my copy real quick so you guys hold still because I want to I want to check something real fast. Okay. So I, I thought so, but I want I wanted to double check. So on my copy, The Rock is in the center, and yes, The Rock is featured in it. Um, but obviously, like he's not a main character by any means, which is crazy to think about. Like the momentum of The Rock in '97, like that star power, not utilizing that. Um, that's 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 shocking to me. Um, obviously WrestleMania 15 hasn't wouldn't take place until 99. Um, and you see Royal Rumble 99 kind of at the at the end of this. So the filming had already stopped by then. Um, but he's featured, obviously, they're smart enough to feature him on the cover um to get a little extra cash, uh, but to to not have the rock um or even like the Hardys involved. Now, obviously, like the filming period whether it's archive footage or footage they shot is three to five years. Um, so there is a timeline of when talent came in that would boom a little bit more in the next year or two. And I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. Um, but it, it's just an interesting character selection. I, it, it makes sense, but also um, it's just interesting to focus on three, which from a director standpoint makes a ton of sense. You know, you have your past, your present and your future makes perfect sense. Um, but to also have uh, a lot of star power left out. And it's interesting. I wonder if stone cold being left out, if is that a stone cold decision or is that a Vince McMahon decision? Interesting. Um, so at the epilogue of the film, it mentions that Funk retirement lasted a whopping three months. Uh, he has his infamous uh, match with Bret Hart, and that's the end. Uh, Dennis Stamp is the referee. It's awesome. Uh, it was on the network. I, I believe it's not up on Peacock yet. Um, it was under the Hidden Gym section. You can find it on YouTube. It's a great match. Um like it. Bret Hart versus Terry Funk. It's just awesome because of the style difference. Um, and it takes place like inside of a cattle barn with a lot of fans. It, it, it's just, it's, it's a fun match to watch. Um, but anyway, uh, so, you know, they make a big deal of this is, this is my last match. I'm done after this. Match ends. Terry Funk is retired into the film. Retirement lasted three months, and then he's back into it. What's crazy is, obviously, in 2021, we know that Funk went on to participate in several more retirement matches. Most recent, obviously, was September 22nd of 2017, and he was 73 at that point, okay? 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and now we're in 2021. Um, so it's been right around almost five years uh, since Terry Funk retired. And, and that's just crazy. Crazy that it was that long uh, or that recent, I should say, that he retired. 
but that long removed from beyond the mat that he officially retired. Um, and obviously Mick Foley has been in the hall of fame. Jake, the snake is in the hall of fame and Terry and his brother, Dory Funk jr. Are also in the hall of fame. Um, so back to, I mentioned this just a little bit ago. We're going to talk about it, about talent, not being in the movie. So, Blaustein wanted to feature Adam Copeland, a.k.a. Edge, in the film, but Copeland was uncomfortable with being in it. I couldn't really find any more info about that. Um, Edge's book doesn't talk about it. There's not interviews about him talking about it. Um, same with Matt Bloom, a.k.a. Lord Tenzai, a.k.a. A-Train, a.k.a. Albert, a.k.a. Giant Bernard. Um, he was also considered, but there's no further information on Okay, did Matt Bloom not want to do it? Did the director change his mind? Did WWF say anything about it? Um, and one evidently one of the reasons that Blasting chose Draws was because he was the most comfortable on camera and I guess being exposed to that. But you also have to think about just how young into their careers uh, that Matt Bloom and Adam Copeland are at this point in anywhere between 96 uh, to 99, really. Um, so we're, we're, we're kind of rounding third, getting ready to come home. And here's what's interesting. So beyond the mat, historical documentary, groundbreaking documentary. Um, there's been a couple like that, but none that have been released in theaters as widely as this and have had such an impact. Bloodstained memoirs is good. Um, slammed inside pro wrestling is good. Like there's a lot of great pro wrestling documentaries out there. Uh, but there haven't been any. There's a lot that have former talent or currently unsigned talent, uh, like Bloodstained Memoirs. Chris Jericho's in it, but I think it was he. It was like between 2005, 2007, so he hadn't renewed his contract yet. Um, he'd taken about a two-year break um, from wrestling, um, and he's featured in it. Um, so Darren Aronofsky, um, the guy who filmed The Wrestler, uh, reportedly got the idea for the movie um, after watching Beyond the Mat. And he claims that Randy the Ram was based partly on Jake the Snake Roberts, which you can see the parallels of that. Um, there were quite a few deleted scenes in this movie as well. Uh, not the wrestler, but in Beyond the Mat that were filmed that were not added in the movie. Um, one of those, uh, Barry Blaustein himself filmed a segment focusing on super fans of pro wrestling and went to the homes of James Masias uh, to film his garage, which had several belts, masks, and posters from Lucha Libre shows, and also the home of Roy Lucier um, to also show his collection of magazines, action figures, pictures, wrestling tapes, and other memorabilia. Um, and obviously these scenes weren't showed in the final cut of the movie, and they're not on the DVD unless they're just hidden somewhere and I haven't seen them yet. Um it also makes you wonder just what other footage is out there. Um, obviously, they added some footage to the 2004 special edition, um, but it's like, what else did they shoot? Um, that's just not there. And I'm not saying like they're sitting on a gold mine, but also just like, just cool backstage stuff. And it's like, man, like, who's talking in the background? Like, who's standing by each other in the background? Who's present at this time? You know, who else, like extras even, if they're filming backstage uh, at a raw taping, the what extras are there at this time? Uh, if I go watch episodes of Raw and I look at enhancement talent for those shows, 
are those on footage somewhere for Beyond the Mat, um, but just not featured in um, Beyond the Mat. So a little bit of facts real quick just about the movie. So obviously it was um, produced by Lionsgate and by Imagine, but it was distributed by Universal Pictures, which is a huge get uh, for distribution. Um, original release date of October 22nd, 1999, but also in March of 1999, uh, or March 2000, I'm sorry. Um, is when the DVD releases. So it's got a run run time of 102 minutes. Um, So just a little over an hour 40. Um, But here's the interesting thing. So the the budget was 500,000, right? Half a billion. It ends up box office making 2 million, which isn't horrible. I mean, it's not great, but that's also like you made your money back. Like you doubled your money you tripled your money, you quadrupled your money. Like that's a success. Um, obviously there's a difference between $2 million and $2 billion. Um, but a success is a success, um, which is good. We, we need that kind of wins for professional wrestling. Um, it was a good win. We also, we haven't received any more wins since then. Um, so for Beyond the Mat, if you have not seen this, I super, super recommend you check it out. Uh, like I said, I'm pretty sure it's still on Netflix. They, I don't know if they've taken it off. Um, it is on YouTube, free with ads, um, if you can't find it on Netflix. I would also, you can get copies super cheap on DVD. You get the special edition. It's worth it. It's awesome just for that interview with um, Mick Foley and Jesse Ventura. I highly Highly recommend you check it out if you haven't. It's just, it's such a great movie. It's such a quotable movie. Um, I mean, the stuff with Dennis Stamp is incredible. I On my Instagram, I have a clip. I'm too lazy to pull it up right now. Um, but at one of the independent shows where Jake the Snake's wrestling, they're interviewing fans and talking about it. And they're like, what's your favorite part about Jake the Snake? And there's just a super backwards hillbilly guy. He's like, I like his snake, his style, the way he does his thing. And his wife like has a sign that says Jake DDT me or something like that. And it's just like that innocence of a fan. It's like, why do you like Jake the snake? Man, I like his style. I, I like the way he he brings the snake to the ring, man. Just the way he does his thing. It's cool. It's just like that is what I love about wrestling fans. I don't want to hear about work rate. I don't want to hear about um, how good they can do this or how many moves they have in their moveset. Like I, like, I want to hear this suspension of disbelief of like, man, like, why do you like that? Man, he's just a good old brother. Like, you can tell he works hard in the gym. And, man, I, I'm not going to pick a fight with him because he'll beat me up, you know. Or it's like, man, that guy's just crazy, but he's fun to watch. It's just like the the pure innocence is in that is what I love about wrestling. And I think that's what comes to my mind when people talk about wrestling being fun. Um, because that's a really good, healthy balance of wrestling being dramatic and th- there being emotion and intensity and passion involved in wrestling, which there should be. I mean, what's the point of watching a match if there's no purpose? to the match is it's like is it to fill time is it to kill time 
even if it's a story as simple as like, hey, these two are just trying to see who's the better of the two. It's like, okay, that's a story. I can work with that. Let's tell that story. Um, instead of like, hey, we're just going to show you every move we have in our arsenal. None of it's really going to matter. Um, we're just going to show you what we can do in 45 minutes versus like, hey, it's going to take 45 minutes uh, for either of these two to give up or, or to be beaten down. Um, uh, there, there's a absolute, absolute necessity for storytelling in all of wrestling. Uh, that's my personal belief. Um, there's the quote, nobody remembers the match. Everybody remembers the finish, uh, good or bad. Um, and that's true. People remember the moments. Uh, I mean, you look at rock versus Hogan at WrestleMania 18. I don't think people remember spot for spot the match. I don't think they remember the quality of the match. They remember the electricity of the crowd and they remember the moment of rock Hogan staring each other down. And then the rock getting the win Hulk shaking his hand. They remember that they might remember the sharpshooter. They might remember Hogan taking his belt off and whipping rock, but they're not going to be like, well, what about the part whenever, uh, Hogan grabbed a chin lock and they held it for a couple of minutes or whenever the rock was leapfrogging over Hulk. And then he did drop downs as well, but then he started doing arm drags and then the crowd started chanting fight forever. It's like, that, that's not what people are going to remember. They remember like, Hey, I just witnessed something larger than life, something bigger. And, and, and that's what wrestling should be about. That's what this podcast is about. Those moments where you get something from wrestling that you can't get anywhere else, uh, whether it's an emotional connection, um, uh, like a mental connection, an excitement connection, wh whatever it is, um, wrestling should be fun. It should be enjoyable to watch. Um, you shouldn't watch something and be cranky because you didn't get to see all the moves you wanted or you didn't see the story you wanted. Uh, you know, wrestling, wrestling should be able to reach the masses, but also have the carved out niches for people who want to go deeper into certain aspects. Watch what you like and don't watch what you don't like. It's that simple. We talk about it all the time on this podcast. Um, if somebody likes something you don't like, cool, that, that, that shouldn't affect you. That shouldn't carry any weight. Like it shouldn't even cross your mind. Um, you should be able just to sit back and watch what you like and nobody, nobody should have any room to tell you what you like isn't good or, or bad. Cause it's all subjective. Obviously, we could get into the, the idea of ratings and like there's facts and statistics that don't lie. Um, but that doesn't statistics and facts aren't going to make you a fan because um, wrestling is very hard to get into as a fan, especially nowadays. Like I don't I don't I genuinely do not know how people become fans of wrestling in 2021. Um. I just don't, um, but I'm glad it, it still happens. I've, I've talked to people before. You almost have to be grandfathered into it um, by other wrestling fans. Once again, going back to word of mouth, uh, it's so important. So I hope you guys enjoyed Beyond the Mats historical deep dive with Professor Rasslin, Mr. Rasslin, Lena Bumgarner. Well, everyone, here is the interview I hinted at earlier. Um, so just a little bit of, of backstory and context. Once again, if you listen to today's episode of the podcast, 
um, which was a historical deep dive in the documentary Beyond the Mat. Um, one of the things that uh, I brought up as I was researching it was there were two fans that were supposed to be featured in it, and obviously that didn't make to the final cut. And here with me right now is one of them named Roy. Roy, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Uh, last name's Lucher, by the way. I know it's a um, it's often mispronounced, so it's yeah, it's Lucher, like Lucifer, but no F. So <laughs> hey, hey, there you go. Hey, it's okay. I've got a weird last name, and it's. Like, I swear some people just try and mispronounce it as hard as they can sometimes. Well, I live up by San Francisco, so Bumgarner, right? Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, with the pitcher, you know, there. Yeah, <laughs> so so that helps. Uh, but it's like down here, like, especially if people write it, it's like, man, like, where are you getting these letters from? That's not even, not, not even phonically how it sounds, but <laughs> it is what it is. Roy, thank you so much uh, for letting me interview you. So, uh... We've talked about it on this podcast before uh, as my host, my co-host and I, we are part of uh, the Major Wrestling Figure Podcast uh, Facebook group. And I've seen you post many, many times before. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was like, what a cool coincidence as I was doing this deep dive um, into Beyond the Mat and just trying to get any kind of information I could other than like just what's easily available. Yeah. And lo and behold, I recognize the name and I think that sounds familiar. I'm just going to, I'm just going to search real quick on the Facebook group. And yeah. sure enough, it was you. Yeah. Oh, I will not uh, ever forget that. And the funny thing is last night, uh, a friend of mine went to a Clippers game with Barry Bloom, who uh, was, you know, I don't, I don't know if he was featured in it. His name probably sounds familiar to a lot of wrestling fans as he's like, uh, Jesse Ventura, Chris Jericho, um, Bret Hart's lawyer and stuff. He's like a, a huge entertainment lawyer and stuff. And he was one of the people that actually came over to my home. There was three people that did it, um, that came over. A little backstory on this. So I went to a show, a WWF show in Anaheim in September 1994. Uh, while I was there, um, just talking to a bunch of people and stuff like that that were... Um, uh, in the crowd and all that before, during, and after the show, one of them turned out to be Barry Blaustein, who I knew as from Saturday Night Live. Um, after talking with Barry for a while, he was telling me that he had this crazy idea to do a documentary featuring all kinds of different stuff behind the scenes of pro wrestling. So this is September 94. We talk for a whole year. He's telling me, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see uh, Jake Roberts. I'm going to go see Terry Funk, all these different things and stuff like that. Um, he made it very clear from the beginning. He was like, well, what I want to do is a different segment on different things and stuff like that that have to do with pro wrestling. One of the things I want to do is I want to do a segment about the super fans of the business. Now, um, being this was 1994, I was well known in the observer as a tape trader back in. I mean, do you know a lot about the tape trading community and stuff like that? Yeah, okay. So, back in '92, I started getting the observer, I started tape trading, and the things with a satellite dish. I used to tape the, the lucha promotions off of there. I had Japanese video stores by me, so I had a huge VHS collection. Also, I had Japanese bookstores by me, so I had a huge magazine collection. I went to all the Lucha shows, so I ended up uh, getting photos with the wrestlers and shows and stuff. This was before the days of meet and greets. Like, nowadays, we are so used to getting to a show and 
99% of the time, if they're advertised, they're going to be there doing a meet and greet before, after, or during the show. I would have to like sit there in the parking lot before the show, hoping to meet them or after and try to meet the wrestlers. So I had a huge like windows, uh, mirrors with like pictures of wrestlers and stuff like that. I think that I showed uh, Barry Blaustein some photos of like what my room looked like and stuff like that. And he was like, oh yeah, we definitely want to feature you. And he was also talking to James Messias Sr. The name may not sound familiar to a lot of people out there, but the guy has like Lucha posters, title belts, all kinds of different masks, more geared toward like Lucha stuff, but there were some American things there and stuff like that. So Steve uh, Barry arranged it where I believe it was April of 96 that him and he said a couple friends would come over and they would uh, fill my room because they wanted to do a segment on super fans. So obviously I set my room as nice as I could actually made my bed for a change and, um, you know, straightened out everything. So tapes are on the left side and I've got like thousands of tapes, no exaggerating all in like Japan, Mexico, us, all these different promotions and stuff, magazines, all in boxes and bins on the side of the bed, Figures, I like every Hasbro figure at the time that came out, I had it, except the Dusty. And it was over on the right side, and it was all surrounding mirrors, and the mirrors had photos of me with all the wrestlers on it. Plus, I had, like, tickets, memorabilia, all kinds of stuff like that from all the shows that I had been to. And um, I showed him uh, Barry Bloom and a guy named Steve Sunshine. Uh, all three of them, like, fil filmed the room, interviewed me, talked to me. Uh, about the the show or, or about my my collection and stuff so i mean i was really stoked about it and stuff like that because at this time uh i believe Meltzer and a few other people started like you know whispering about it and stuff like you know huge saturday night live um uh producer barry Blo barry blaustein is uh doing a movie about pro wrestling in fact there wasn't even a name yet it wasn't even called beyond the mat um Finally, he started working on it. I heard from a friend of mine, Bob Barnett, that uh, Blaustein was at the uh, Funk uh, Brett match in Amarillo, Texas. So I knew that they were continually filming it. So, I mean, it was like, geez, four or five years of work at this point that he mm -hmm. put into it. Um, finally, the movie came out. And I, was it March of 99, February 99? It, 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 was, it was somewhere in there, early 99. Yeah. So I remember a friend of mine and I, we went to uh, the movie theater in Orange. No, no. Barry did call me up uh, in late 98 to tell me that uh, he did all the final things with the movie DVD cut or movie final cut for the theaters and stuff like that. And he said some things would have to be cut out. And unfortunately, the scenes with me and James Macias uh, had to be cut out as he had to edit in something about um, he followed New Jack to a movie tryout and he really wanted that in there as, as New Jack was such a uh, controversial figure at the time and he figured the buzz from New Jack being in it would, uh, um, you know, help with the movie or whatever. Yeah. Of course, that's yeah. fine with it. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely um, fine with that whatsoever. Uh, obviously no animosity. I, I would love to have seen that in like a beyond the mat DVD, like, you know, deleted scenes type thing. I mean, obviously I, I would, you know, in fact, I don't 
tell enough about this story because it's like I I um I've done so much like wrestling wise or whatever. It's like someone hears that and it's like, oh, but yeah, who who would you be in this or what would you do or whatever? But you know, it was cool to have the you know one of the head writers and producers for Saturday Night Live over at my home, and then you know later. Oh, when he introduced me to Barry Bloom, it's like at the time I knew who he was because Jesse Ventura always mentioned him on on Superstars and Primetime and all that stuff. So that was pretty cool to get the show off my room. And, uh, you know, that it was it definitely a fun experience. Did you get to, by any chance, did you get to see any of the footage that was filmed or did you take any pictures that day or anything like that? None whatsoever. None. It, it makes me wonder, obviously, it, it was a different time uh, with it being over 20 years ago. But it makes me wonder, like, with today's technology and the fact that everybody has a camera, everybody has a computer in their hands, basically, uh, with it being a phone. And it, it makes me wonder, like, if that were to take place today, like, how easily he would have been like, hey, I'm going to send you five seconds of footage real quick. I'm going to text it to you right now. or. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email it. It just, it's crazy to think uh, even back then with just uh, with how film was still done um, that it wasn't as easy as like, hey, even though it's going to be cut, you know, can you shoot, can you put it in a Dropbox or something? Can you email well, it? You know, I, I get where Barry's coming from because in a sense it is, it is his intellectual property. Um, a week ago last Monday, I was actually on a CBS show called Hot Bench over a lawsuit, and I asked the producer for it, uh, can I get a copy of it because I don't have cable television, and she said they won't give it out because it's their intellectual property, even to the people that did it. So, no, I totally get. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, it makes sense. But no, as a as a fan, you know, who who was involved, I mean, I'd love to see it. Don't get me wrong. I don't know. I, I think I may have tried reaching out to Barry. I know he's got a private, very private Facebook page or account, not a page. Uh, and I noticed like two or three mutual friends. And I think I may have messaged him and, and asked him about it, but he never saw the message. So, um, I mean, really no communication since really the movie came out. Uh, I haven't seen him in any shows. Um a friend of mine who I just chatted with last night who went to the Clipper game with Barry Bloom, he told me he was actually going to uh, bring up the evening with him and see what he remembers about it. Uh, obviously, Barry Bloom has been involved in so much stuff in his life. I'm sure one night he spent over at a fan's house who's got like tapes and magazines and wrestling figures and photos on his wall isn't going to jump out at him. But I'm, I'm curious like what he may say or, or remember about the the day but oh it it was definitely fun and you know i i would love to somehow down the road a blu-ray version comes out and has the footage in it you know but and james macias too he's a great guy he lives in um azusa california been a wrestling fan a long time and stuff uh his son's now a dj uh but he uh you know huge wrestling fan like me um you know, just I, I really wish I could have seen that footage in the movie, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's interesting uh, to me because, I mean, it makes perfect sense with the whole intellectual property thing. Um, so long story short, my great uncle uh, was the actor James Garner. And, you know, we always thought like, man, his house has just got to be full of props from the TV shows and movies that he did. Is he the one that did The Notebook? Yes. yes. Oh, my God. The, the old man in The Notebook. <laughs> 
And oh <laughs> what what was interesting to me is we actually uh, I don't I don't have it with me. It's at my parents' house, but we just found out the other day uh, we have an Army Rangers hat that we thought was you know a real Army Rangers hat from World War II uh, that was his from when he served in World War II. And we started looking at the brim because the brim started coming undone. It says property of Warner Brothers in it. And so it's interesting uh, how production companies and stuff like that are protective of their rights. But it, it makes sense. But it makes me wonder, because um, as I was looking at it, it was Imagine and Lionsgate that were the production companies. And then it was uh, Universal, which was the distribution company. It makes me wonder between those three, is that footage? Surely that footage is still out there, just sitting in a storage room. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna say Barry himself is probably the one with the footage uh, more than anybody. Um, yeah, I. I, I want to try reaching out to him again at some point. Uh, you know, like I, you know, I, I know I have connections, and I, I know I could probably do it. It's, um. Yeah, I wouldn't say because you know Barry was the. I'm pretty sure Barry was the one that had to do all the final cuts and get it to the the studio or whatever. So anything that was filmed and cut out of the final scene, I'm pretty sure maybe it's probably still he, with him. Yeah, it's got to be with him probably. It, it's just interesting. It makes me think. Um, like that's got to stick out in his mind out of all the stuff that they filmed. Um, obviously they have a lot of wrestling centered content with wrestlers and wrestling personalities, but it's like, Hey, do you remember, you know, for anyone on that team, it's like, Hey, remember when we shot the, the wrestling fan stuff or when we we're going to do the wrestling fan stuff yeah. like that, that memory still got to be it's, tucked it's in there. Be. Yeah. I would selfish. I would love, you know, like, uh, like shout factory and arrowhead, those kind of companies are doing some special, uh, release Blu-rays and it's just got tons of bonus features. I would say, I know we've already passed the 20th anniversary, but either for the 25th or 30th anniversary, if they would drop, um, if they would just straight up drop a Blu-ray of it um, with even more footage, because I know, um, so there's the initial release of it. And then in 2004, they did the special edition, which had the Jesse Ventura and Mick Foley stuff on it it makes me wonder what was what was the was it a japan release only that had the terry funk figure inside of it yes yes which you can still uh you can occasionally the pop up on ebay in the states but otherwise um which it's just crazy like that that there was an exclusive version uh that came with that but there was no u.s equivalent of that it's crazy how often that happens you know especially you know you and i being a part of that facebook group with matt and brian how there's like limited releases in other countries. Like, what was it? Those fun school figures that were like the Hasbro versions mm-hmm. that only got released in India and stuff like that. You know, I'm, I'm so into the history and what happened one place that didn't happen in another. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a huge part why I love being a part of that group is just hearing those type of stories. And, you know, especially that beyond the mat, I mean, who made the decision to put in, uh, a limited edition Terry Funk figure. I mean, how yeah. many exist? I mean, there's there's so many questions about that. I mean, it, it did Kiara Pro were they the makers of the figure? I mean, there's I, I could ask a million questions about that. It's crazy. And you know, it, by the way, I'm looking here at um, Barry Blaustein's private page. The dude was major, wrote songs and helped produce the Coming to America sequel. 
late last nice. year. Nice. So, I mean, the dudes continued yeah. to stay in the business and, you know, and relevant and stuff like that. But, but as a wrestling fan, the thing that's always going to jump out to me most will, of course, be the beyond the mat stuff. I believe that mm-hmm. was his only endeavor into, you know, the pro wrestling world, too. Yeah, to my knowledge, it is. Um, it's It's just wild to think about the exclusivity of stuff outside of the United States, even with um, there's a, there's like a DVD, a wrestling DVD swap group I'm a part of on Facebook and the stuff that's just constantly being released in the UK. And I'm just sitting here like, why can we not get any of that in the U S like, why is that not, why is that not an official release in the United States? But in the UK, it's like, Hey, you want the Paul bearer mortician documentary from the network? Here you go. Exclusive two disc. Did you ever hear the story in Spain about the um, series one Hasbro's? And apparently because they had a different TV show over there. uh, One of the things, like each figure was like somehow different and it wasn't just the translation of the name. So have you ever heard the story of the Akeem figure? Uh Uh-uh. So look this up when we get off because this is hilarious. So for some reason over in Spain on the WWF uh, broadcast, they gave this long story about how Akeem's real name is Akeem Riccio or something. And he was like, uh, came from a homeless background or something like that. So when the figure came out, it was actually on the bottom. It said Akeem Riccio on the figure. I, you know, I'm not into foreign card figures, but if I ever came, I, I think the only one I would ever want to get would, would be, be that uh, one. I came Recio because like, I, I gotta like, uh, find this, uh, but this is hilarious. Like how it had, and this is exclusive only to, um, you know, to Spain. So, you know, you think about all these different countries that are having, um, uh, different things exclusive for them. It's crazy to me. Right. Well, isn't it, uh, is it the star toys? Um, they're like the, I, I don't know if they're 12 oh. inch or not, but they're the, it's like warrior hacksaw. Jake. Yeah. And they've all boss got like man. their real hair, big boss. Yeah. man. Yeah. And, and the thing is like from far away, they look really scary. They almost look like, yeah. uh, Mike Myers level scary. Yeah. They're, they're terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently these things are like ultra, ultra rare, you know, especially some limited release from in a foreign country from 30 years ago. It's thousands of dollars, you know, yeah. like it's, it's just like what this is just the stuff that we know that's out there. It's like what yeah. else is out there that was even more scarce or limited edition? Like what else, you know, even just with figures, like what else? video release came with exclusive figures in other countries that we don't know about here. Yeah. I, it's, just I, like, I, it's, it's crazy to think about. Yeah. I, I selfishly, if they ever do um, a spe- like a 25th or 30th anniversary of beyond the mat um, and do a Blu-ray, I think it would be super cool. Even if it was pre-order only or something like that for them to either reissue that Terry Funk figure or to even, I mean, for them to find somebody else. I know uh, Jake Roberts isn't with uh, WWE anymore, obviously. I wonder if something, if Jazzwares could take a shot at doing something like that. But I think it would just be 
selfishly as a collector, I think it would be cool, but throw some more meat on the bone for the for the re-release. Because uh, really, to my knowledge, other than it going up on Netflix, there really hasn't been any big news with Beyond the Mat uh, since that uh, special release in about 2004. Oh, yeah. And by the way, uh, Akeem Riccio. That's so cool. And it's it's on the it's on the front of the figure too. Uh, That's insane. Yeah, it's it, they they had their own storylines, like whatever storylines that we had here. The announcers were like completely doing different stuff because they weren't like uh, being monitored by WWF and told do this, this, and this. And I mean, they didn't really. The fact they had their own storylines, and then the figures come out, and they're with those names. Yeah, hilarious to me. It, well, it's it's funny just because with TV in general, I mean, you look at stuff that it's like, hey, this is how it was in the country it originally aired. And then somebody just bought the rights to the footage and just did whatever they want with it. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It happens a lot, especially with like Spanish soap operas. Yeah. 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 It's just like, okay, if you saw the original, this is nothing like it. And I think there's a degree to freedom. uh in that, but I would love to see. I wish I, if I could find uh, some of the Spain episodes, but with English subtitles somehow, or if my Spanish was good enough to fully understand everything, I would love to just, you know, sit down and watch a month or two of WWF TV at the time. It's like, yeah. okay, what is Akeem doing? Well, you know, how is he being presented on TV? How is he being put over on commentary? Stuff like that. Like, what is what does Akeem say when he gets on the microphone? You well, know, what does Slick thing, say for him? Over the years, there's been times where I haven't been able to catch WWF TV like right as it happened. So I would watch a Spanish feed later. And the funny thing is, like, uh, the Spanish feed would would obviously were saying things like that uh, the, the, they were getting away with that somebody never caught on to. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of my favorite examples is when Mason Ryan, remember that guy? Mm-hmm. Batista Mason number two. Ryan. Yeah, exactly. The the Spanish announcer would call him Batista Dos the whole match, <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> like not even hiding it, calling him <laughs> Batista Dos. I love that. <laughs> And, um, oh, back in the late 90s, whenever um, Steve Blackman would come to the ring, the announcers would start talk, calling him uh, Steve uh, NWO Black and White, like in English. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> and my favorite was uh, back when uh, Billy Gunn was using the name Mr. Ass, the announcers were, now it's, this is the correct name. They would call him Senor Culo. I love it. <laughs> I, why, I actually, why not? I saw Billy like three years ago at a show in Modesto, and I'm like, "Did you hear about the Spanish announcer stuff with you?" He's all, "No." And I told him like, "Hey, they were calling you Senor Culo the whole time," and he just <laughs> thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> that does it. Like I, for himself, like just to pop himself, he needs to throw up a pro wrestling T-shirt that just says Mr. Culo, and now yeah. like. Just, <laughs> just give zero context to it and just see what happens and see. Uh, because I guarantee that'd be one of those things like all of a sudden on Twitter threads just break out. I was like, okay, I thought I was the only one who picked this up. Yeah. Well, what was the what was the other thing? Like, um someone in Matt and Brian's group like was talking about 
the renegade figure for WCW and mm. Shark, and I guess like nobody picked up on it. And then Matt got the catalog, and uh, uh, Smart Mark did a search, and they were able to find like a couple people that kept bringing it up. And like I swore I saw this, but I don't have proof. You know, mm-hmm. so, yeah. That's like uh, I had a similar incident with Matt. Oh, it's probably. It was probably spring of 2020, oddly enough. There was Jack Specific. They did, they randomly did a multi pack in the UK only. And it was one of the rings, an entrance stage, and then like a scaffolding uh, playset. And I had, I'd only ever seen one picture of it on uh, the wrestling figures forums just ye- probably 15 years ago, if, if not 20 years ago. I just saw one picture of it, never saw it again. And somebody had said something to Matt like, hey, have you ever heard of this? And he was like, no, what is this? And no one could come up with anything. And I spent weeks trying to find it. Finally tracked down just a single shot from like a catalog of this one thing. And it was like, I know I'm not crazy. I know know it exists. Well, you know, a lot of this too is like, you know, I... You know about my video collection, right? My YouTube channels and all that. Mm -hmm. So like right now, I'm going through literally 300 discs one at a time and trying to like cut them up and uh, catalog them and upload them as long as WWE doesn't own them. Uh, I'll ignore that for like, you know, world class and AWA Mm -hmm. stuff because it's like they really don't care about that. It's reviews and TV that they do. But um, when I when I put one of these videos in and burn it to my computer and I start going through it. I actually go through the commercials yeah. because I'm finding advertisements for stuff that like, for example, I found a commercial for a uh, CMLL in 1993 and I start going through the commercial and it's a uh, vampiro going to a top rope and it's for the figures and the ring and stuff like that. But in the commercial, they show uh Pirata Morgan in the commercial and then a figure of Pirata Morgan getting ready to fight Ultimo Dragon and Vampiro and stuff like that. The Pirata Morgan figure never came out. Right. So yeah. I mean, it's like, what the hell? Like, I immediately cut the commercial out, put it up on my YouTube channel, took screenshots of it, went to the Wrestling Figs website, went to like every Twitter, whatever that I know. And I'm like, hey, does anybody, because this is like to, to me as a Lucha fan, the Greg the Hammer Valentine mm. of the Lucha world, that here is a figure that is completely made and nobody knows anything about and mm-hmm. stuff like that. As fate would have it, Pirata Morgan was working a show by me two weeks later up here in Fairfield. I showed him the commercial and he was all like, I got no clue what that's about. You know, he, he remembers filming the commercial, but he didn't know anything about the figure or anything like that. You know, it's damn. So no, yeah. but it's, it's always fun like going through old magazines, old commercials, old stuff, just to see like what potentially may have come out or did come out like a variant wise or whatever, you know? Yeah. And even seeing, you know, for like you said, with variants and stuff, or even like, Hey, this is what the prototype looks like. And then the actual release, it's like, Whoa, like this is a completely different outfit. Or even in some cases, like this is a completely different gimmick. Yeah, it's it's just crazy, and that's just you know even with local stuff. Um, not to mention like okay, this is this is how it was released in the U.S. There's no telling what it was released like in yeah. the U.K. or in Spain or anywhere else, even in Canada. It's just 
especially with the laws in Canada when it comes to everything has to have dual uh, French and English mm-hmm. uh, packaging on it. So there could be all kinds of like variants when it comes to that. Yeah. That's like uh, randomly. So I went to Canada for the first time in 2014 or 2015, I want to say. And I went into a record store. And this is just right on the cusp of vinyl coming back and people getting all excited about it. And they just randomly had a had maybe a four foot wide shelf of just DVDs for dirt cheap. And they had all five seasons of Breaking Bad on DVD. And I was like, oh, I'm going to buy this because it's way cheaper than if I buy it at Walmart back home. Yeah. And just the variations because it had the, the dual translations on it. But they were like season to season. They were completely different. I mean, format the way it was laid out to where it's like, oh, okay. You know, on, on the edge, on the binding, it'll have English first and then French and then season two, it'd be flip-flopped. And then the, even the back to where it's like, you know, here's translation one, here's translation two is like, Hey, here's sentence one, translation one, here's sentence one, translation two, sentence two, sentence two. And it was just like, Okay. I've always They're, been looking for that. Uh, what was it? The DVD release, the limited with the bag of blue meth in it or whatever. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember I, I got so frustrated when I bought all those DVDs because I got I just bought the seasons individually at that place, got a great deal, went home, and two weeks later, um, they released like the complete bundle that comes in the, the barrel and comes oh. with like the apron and stuff. It's like Okay. Aww. It's like, do I buy single releases or do I hold out for the cool collector's edition with all the the extra goodies on it? Well, remember Lord of the Rings, what they did? Like, they came out with these super collector's editions that had, like, figurines and statues and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, an hour, 45 minutes to an hour of extra footage on each one. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I was like, how did this get cut out of the original movie? You know? Yeah. It's also interesting, going back to wrestling just the random stuff that would come with DVDs and tapes eventually uh, without, you know, sometimes specific stores will announce like, Hey, if you order it here or if you buy it here, it comes with this. And then some completely unannounced. I remember maybe it was like, not the hell in the cell pay-per-view DVDs, but like, you know, I want to say around 2008, there was, it was like the Devil's Playground, Hell in the Cell, or or something like that, or Deadly's Hell in the Cell matches, something like that. And bought the DVD at Walmart. It was awesome. It had like every Hell in the Cell match up until 2007 or so. And then like a year later, I'm in a video store and they have it, and it comes with they have multiple, and it's in a gigantic box now. And it came with I think an Undertaker bust. Or a cane bust, Aww. and it's just like, wh- when was this announced? Who like who 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 decided this store gets this and nothing? No other stores get anything. That's one of the things I really appreciate about Matt and Brian doing the news segments is you got to you get an update on like figures and stuff like that. And even then, stuff still cr- uh, cracks slips mm-hmm. through the cracks like. What was it like a week or two ago? There was some kind of like Neidhart and Natty double pack that came out. I didn't hear anything about that from the mm-hmm. guy, you know, and apparently Natty didn't either. Someone tagged her in it and she's, like, oh, I definitely got to get a couple of these or whatever. It's right. Like, 
with all due respect, if you're being featured in that, you would hope the company would like, you know, throw a few your way or whatever. Yeah. Like, um, to all the guys that are living uh, with Zombie Sailor, um, I contacted one of the guys uh, and he was telling me, oh yeah, he promised to send me a few that I'll autograph and, and send out and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's, uh, uh, you know, that, that's pretty cool. But it's like any company that makes something and doesn't send any to the talent, it's like, oh, geez, Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, uh, I mean, Matt and Brian talk about all the time, like, there's no telling what all merch they actually have. Like, no. they, they think they're on top of it, and then all of a sudden, so it'll be like, hey, did you get this poker chip from the bag of chips in the UK? And it's like, no, why would I know about Like, how how does that kind of stuff happen? And then it's funny, like, people like Dean Ambrose and, you know, John Moxley and Chelsea Green are just like, they don't care. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, they sent me a box of stuff and I just threw it away the next day. (laughs) Man, it's crazy. Well, Roy, thank you so much. uh, You're welcome. Thanks for giving me some of your time. Uh, I would love, we'll set up another time um, whenever my co-host can be on uh, because he's, he's the real tape trader out of the two of us. I like to think of myself as an archivist uh, with wrestling. Um, I'll, I'll share you. I'll share with you some of the libraries I have uh, cool. once we're off air, but I'd we'd love to sit down with you and get a get a full episode just all about tape trading. I think that'd be really cool. I'd I'd love to do it for sure. Tape trading is definitely something I'm passionate about. I was 17 getting my name out there, and I'm almost 50 now. So I mean, it's been a it's been a long time, and something I've been passionate about. Something that I was. Oh my God, all over when that whole world came out, the whole tape trading thing and stuff like that. And luckily now I have so many of these DVDs sitting around, you know, and even now um, I have a WWE employee that is giving me an entire tape collection to transfer to DVD that is in the thousands of tapes. And uh, as you probably know, like three years ago, two years ago, two, over two, Mike Tanay gave me his entire collection. And that's what uh, th- all these tapes of uh, DVDs have been transferred from and stuff. And there's all kinds of like unseen stuff in here. Uh, there was like a uh, Ric Flair thing that I uploaded, um, like satellite footage. And uh, Flair had one of his people reach out to me, like wanting the uh, original tape and stuff like that, because he had never seen it before. And yeah. it was apparently the first time him and Fifi had done some uh, promo work together. So you know, it's, it's, it's always great to um, share my collection, but bring back great memories or open someone's eyes to a certain style or a certain mm. match for the for the first time. You know, yeah. like it, it, it's a huge, biggest compliment I can get is, is, you know, thanks for, uh, I remember this when I was a kid or when I was younger, thanks for bringing back the memories. Cause that, that to me, is like, well, I remember this. There are certain matches from the nineties where I could still second by second, tell you every little bit, bit of thing about, and for me to share this collection with the world is, uh, the least I could do for as good as pro wrestling has been to me. Absolutely. And, and you're doing great work with it. Uh, because it's moments like that that carry so much weight. And if you can tap into that nostalgia and give people that feeling. And for me personally, I found uh, there's a YouTube channel I follow. And they just started uploading just random bits of live show announcements. Um, you know, right as Raw was coming back from commercial break. Hey, here's where we're going to be this next week. Oh, yeah. and I, I, just, I, I do that a lot, especially like from the Tanae stuff. There'll be commercials for like... 
during Raw, there'll be commercials for the rival promotion, like NWC or WCW shows that are mm-hmm. in Vegas. Or I'll, uh, AWA, I'll cut out the commercial where they do like uh, performance, uh, the the event centers and stuff like that. Or uh, oh god, go, going back to the eighties when Mean Gene would do the uh, the localized promos. That mm-hmm. stuff means gold. And um, someone very high up in WWE has told me they do not have a lot of those localized promos. So when I come across some and go through a disc. And I find localized promos. That stuff always stands out to me. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I saw one the other day for like a Madison Square Garden show where Hogan was uh, fighting Kamala in a Ugandan death match or something. And in the promo, like Hogan had the, the Kamala face paint on and challenging with stuff like that. And it's just, man, this is gold. You yeah. Know? yeah. And, and it's stuff that either people have never seen or you have the few people who did get to see it and now they're getting to see it again all these years later. Like for me, uh, that YouTube channel, I found uh, the first WWE event I ever went to. I was in the fifth grade and I found the live show announcements for it from an episode of Raw. This guy just put it up. It's 20 seconds long. And I was like, I remember being in my family living room, seeing that and hearing that on TV. And now like, obviously had to get a copy of it and now having that just forever to it's like, man, like making oh, yeah. sure stuff like that isn't lost to history forever. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, I, I hate to read about things and find out that they're, you know, lost forever. So many people swear they saw it. Like people want to call it the Mandela effect. I, I call it the, uh, the Sinbad effect. Cause most people like, if you heard the, the what it's called the Mandela effect, when so many people swear mm-hmm. they saw something, and it has to do with like Mandela's death, they swear yeah. it was a monster. But to me, it's like that should be more like more people think of Sinbad doing the genie thing or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's what mm-hmm. it should actually be called. Exactly. You know, like three four years ago, Sinbad actually did a little short video. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, awesome. Roy, thank you again so much for being on. Uh, I think I selfishly, I think uh, this is the the icing on the cake uh, with the deep dive I did into Beyond the Mat because it's like, once again, here's like a little nugget of history that most people didn't know about. And here you are, the the man, the myth, the legend himself getting to share your thoughts on that and, and thoughts on collecting and your thoughts on tape trading. Man, I cannot Thank you now for being on the podcast. I'm honored to be on. Pleasure to be here. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug before we uh, go? Just my Twitter page uh, or my YouTube channels. So my Twitter page, uh, twitter.com backslash R-O-Y-L-U-C-I-E-R. And almost at 6,000 followers. If I get 10,000 followers, I can actually get official merchandise some pressing keys without paying a $75 finder's fee. So please help me out. <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, my YouTube channels. So the reason I have so many YouTube channels is I used to have one YouTube channel for everything. And then a company would get a stick up their ass and take down so many videos and YouTube would take down the whole uh, channel. What I figured out is let's put everything on different channels. Roy Lusher, WWWF, Roy Lusher, CMLL, Roy Lusher, AAA, Roy Lusher, UWA, Roy Lusher, All Japan Women, Roy Lusher, Wrestling Territories, Roy Lusher, Olympic Auditorium, Roy Lusher, Houston, and so on and so forth. 
The reason for that being is if one channel ends up getting copyright struck and then comes down, they haven't screwed with the other 10 channels that exist. That's smart. So feel free to go ahead, look up uh, your preference, uh, whatever you're into, and uh, or just put my name in there and whatever you like, you know, follow or uh, whatever whatever you feel the the need to do. But um, you know, I'm I'm proud of the work I'm doing, especially with the lucha promotions. I a year and a half ago, my wife and I went to Mexico City for the first time. I was uh, treated wonderful down there by not just the uh, luchadors, but by the country of Mexico itself, mm. and I love that place, and I can't wait for everything to fully open up so I can mm-hmm. go back down there. Absolutely. Man, Roy, thank you again for for what you do for the wrestling community and uh, the work you do to preserve history. Once again, you guys check that out. I'll put links to it on our Facebook page. Roy, thank you again so much for being on the show. Thanks. Proud to be here.